0: Dear friends, I want to welcome you, those of you who are here in person, those who are online, and a special hola to my Spanish-speaking sisters. It is a delight to be here with you, and I want to just apologize in advance to those of you who were very excited when you saw the lesson and saw the name Brown on the lesson. Fear not, Lynn Brown will be teaching in a couple of weeks. But for today, my name is Lauren Brown. And I have the joy of taking us through Acts chapter 16. I first attended EWG last century, back in the 80s. That's a lifetime ago for some of you. And I was struck then and I am struck now by how many faithful women began this ministry, participated in the ministry, and served In this ministry. And some of those women continue to participate and serve today. And that has been such an example and encouragement to me to know that we have faithful women who've gone before us. And so it's a delight to be here together. Some of you may remember if you were around in that time that EWG used to have electives that would follow the lecture and would follow the discussion group time. And those electives would last usually a couple of weeks, and they would be more practical and useful things. So it could be how to memorize, it could be how to do things in your home a little bit better. And I actually taught one of those electives, nothing that was really godly, I taught aerobics. (laughs) But you have to remember that aerobics in that time during the 80s was a big thing. Aerobics was very popular, and we had a lot of fun here because it was great exercise and great fellowship. Thankfully, I don't think there are any pictures available from that time, (laughs) so I do thank the Lord for that. But I do have other photos from that era of the 80s, and I don't know if you're like me, but one of the things that was also big in that time was hair, big hair, (laughs) really big hair, And I don't know, in retrospect, how I thought that I looked good with that hair. Although today, with the wind, I feel like I'm Albert Einstein anyway, so maybe things haven't changed that much. But I married my beloved Larry in that decade. And so when I think back on that time, there are wonderful memories that balance out those head-scratching recollections of what I did. And that mix of wonderful and weird seems to be very much what we are in right now and how we are living. This past year, we've learned new phrases like flatten the curve and community spread, and we've learned new behaviors like wearing masks and how to become proficient on Zoom. But there have also been some very difficult times, and I know some of you have gone through loss and sadness during that time, And yet through this past year, we've also seen that the Lord has been gracious to provide some encouragement and some joy. For my family, we had two babies born in the last year on different ends of the country. We had a high school graduation in the middle of the country. And in the summer, we had what was originally planned as a glorious wedding with 400 people And it changed and changed and changed and became a still glorious celebration, but with 11 family members. So there are things in this last year that we look at mixes of hardship, but there are also highlights. And that's what we see in this study of Acts as well. Even as the gospel goes forth, there is opposition, there is persecution. But Luke portrays that redemptive plan that God is in control of all things. Luke quotes from the Old Testament and alludes to the Old Testament that refers back to God's plan that salvation is in the name of Jesus Christ and he is the fulfillment of all that God had promised. Acts is the story of the first 30 years of the church and simple, steadfast Christianity is realized here as God's promised program Comes to the nations. We know that God is always at work sovereignly. He orchestrates all people and all events to accomplish His will, and it results in His glory and our good. Remember when Judy taught us last fall? It's something that has really stayed with me the truth that the world is not falling apart, but it's falling into place. And I hold on to that because sometimes it feels like everything is collapsing but it's not because God is sovereign and God is in control and we can trust him because everything is moving towards that expected end that God's designated plan for his people will end in the restoration of his kingdom. So as we continue our study in Acts, chapter 16 tells the story of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey when the Holy Spirit continued the work first given by Christ to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. And in Acts 16, the gospel continues its march around the world with the conversions of Lydia and the Philippian jailer, the first two recorded Gentile conversions in Europe. In this chapter, we will see God's divine plan of redemption for all people, Jew or Gentile, man or woman, without discrimination, In this chapter, we see that God uses scattered believers to accomplish his plan as Paul brought the gospel to Philippi. In this chapter, we see the Holy Spirit empowering believers to preach the gospel with boldness and with confidence, even in the face of opposition. This chapter shows us the character of our God. It shows us his great plan of salvation, and it encourages us as believers to draw near to God, to deepen our love for him as we anticipate his return. So if you have not yet, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. I've divided these 40 verses into three sections. The first is clarity. The second is conversion. And the third is conflict and confinement. One of the things that's interesting to me in the first 10 verses where we're looking at clarity is what is communicated and how things are communicated. Because there's a seeming reversal of what we just studied last week in Acts 15, that the Jerusalem council said circumcision is not necessary for salvation. But then God directs Paul and Timothy and Silas in different ways. And so we see not only that God is in control, but they are told where not to go and where to go. And both of those things are an example of how we see God at work, not according to the wisdom of the world, but through divine insight and divinely inspired action. So let's read the first 10 verses together. Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in these parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the church and the churches were being strengthened in the faith and increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Messiah, they came to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There are two elements that I want to note in these ten verses First, the addition of Timothy to the team of missionaries, and then God's sovereign direction to this team. You know, when we studied Acts 15 last week, we saw the Jerusalem Council affirm the truth that circumcision was not necessary for either salvation or sanctification. And you remember that there was a serious disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, and that resulted in the two men separating, with Barnabas taking John Mark to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas traveling on through Syria and Cilicia. This is really where Paul's second missionary journey started, as Paul and Silas traveled to Derbe and to Lystra, and it's in Lystra, which is where Timothy lived. Timothy, we're familiar with him, was raised by a faithful grandmother, Lois. And of Mother Eunice, they were devout Jews who became believers in Jesus Christ, and they named Timothy one who honors God. He would have been a young man at this time in Acts 16, probably in his teens or early 20s, and we know that because later on, about 15 years later, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and calls him a young man. That should be encouraging to us. Timothy's father is not mentioned in this account, so it's assumed that he was no longer living at this time. But Timothy was well regarded by believers, and Paul later called Timothy his beloved son, his true child in the faith. And that's a beautiful picture of a long-lasting and faithful friendship. In verse 3, we see that Paul decided to circumcise Timothy Because the Jews knew that Timothy's father was Greek. It's an interesting juxtaposition because we just came off chapter 15 about the controversy at the Jerusalem Council and whether a new believer had to be circumcised. Peter stood against the Pharisees to argue emphatically that the gospel was for Gentiles and it was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Circumcision was not needed Nothing else was needed for salvation. So when we get here to chapter 16, it's important to understand that Paul's decision to circumcise Timothy was not done because it was necessary for salvation. The Jerusalem council decided and Paul affirmed that salvation was by grace only and it was accomplished by Christ's work on the cross. Paul had Timothy circumcised because it would provide this son of a Jewish father with access into the Jewish synagogues along the way. Paul's decision was made so that Timothy's status, whether he was circumcised or uncircumcised, it would not be a distraction or an obstacle when preaching to Jews. You might remember in Galatians chapter 2 that Paul refused to have Titus circumcised because he, unlike Timothy, was a full-blooded Gentile. So to circumcise Titus would have meant capitulating to legalism. But we know from our text that Timothy was both Jew and Gentile, and had he not been circumcised, that would have been interpreted potentially as renouncing his Jewish heritage. And it could have been a major stumbling block as they shared with Jews. Paul exemplified the principle that he later wrote about in Romans 14, that believers should not judge one another, but determine or purpose not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. That was the motive behind Timothy's circumcision, not to allow any hindrance to the gospel. Once that was done, Paul and Silas and Timothy went throughout the region, delivering the good news from the Jerusalem council that Gentiles were welcome in God's kingdom. And the result we see in verse 5, that their numbers were added to daily. The second interesting note in this section is how God directed Paul and Silas as they traveled through the towns in these regions. It's clear that he was telling them where not to go, and it's also equally clear that he was instructing them where to go. In verses 6 and 7, Luke writes that the Holy Spirit had forbidden Paul and Silas to go to Ephesus or Smyrna or Laodicea or Colossae. These were all towns in Asia Minor that are now part of modern-day Turkey. Paul and Silas were also instructed not to go to Bithynia, which was north. So coming from the east, they were prohibited to go north or south, So what other option existed but to go west? The instructions to not travel were communicated by the Spirit. There's no indication of exactly how that happened. It could have been a vision. It could have been circumstances. But Luke doesn't give us any details, so we can't speculate. But Luke does give us a detail that's very important he lets his readers know that it was the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who was leading Paul and Silas. And what's interesting here is that God's direction didn't come through affirmation, but it came through denial. It didn't come by saying yes, but it came by saying no. It's often our habit that we look for blessing as an indication that God approves something, that a specific effort is the right way to go. We judge an effectiveness of ministry by numbers and attendees. We often interpret confirmation of a job opportunity or a relationship on how easily circumstances come together. But in this case, God used denial to direct his servants Paul didn't set out to go to Macedonia. It was probably his second or his third choice, but it was God's first choice. Where the Lord sent them is where they were needed. David Livingston wanted to go to China, but God sent him to Africa. William Carey wanted to go to Polynesia, but God sent him to India. Adoniram Judson went to India, but then God redirected him to Burma. And Amy Carmichael desired to serve in Asia, but God used her to minister effectively for more than 50 years in India. Those are just some well-known missionaries we know, and God redirected them. But we see that here, that God also redirected Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. We often think of no as something disagreeable or something difficult, But God intended that and intends it for us today for the good of his children. Paul's desire to go to new places and to share the gospel to new people was a good and honorable plan. But it wasn't God's plan. It wasn't the right time nor the right place. But even in this no, God brought about two wonderful circumstances. And it's helpful to remember that. First, we see that Paul and Silas headed to Macedonia, and they were joined by, as I've said before, Luke, our faithful Luke. There is a change, which you see in verse 11, to the plural noun, we, and that probably indicates that Luke now traveled with Paul and Silas and Timothy. And so, therefore, Luke became a firsthand witness of the gospel spread into Europe. And then he wrote of that because Paul and Silas were willing to follow God's direction both his no and his yes. So not only was Luke a witness to and an author of these events, but that trained doctor also accompanied Paul on his journey. Even as Paul was beaten multiple times as he was imprisoned in cities along the way, God provided and allowed Luke to be a personal physician to our dear Paul. An unexpected consequence when God says no, that he provided strength for our Apostle Paul. So even in these first verses in Acts 16, there's a principle for us to follow, that God is sovereign over all circumstances and over all people. He may direct through open doors and he may direct through closed doors. The scenarios that we engage in so foolishly, so often of what if or if only God wants us to respond by trusting him and thanking him for his perfect providence. Paul provides an example from his own life in his letter to this beloved flock in Philippians chapter 4 verse 6, "Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension," will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So as we look at the example in these first 10 verses, the question for us is, how can you rest in what the Lord has ordained for you today? How can you respond, not with fear, but with faith? As we move to this next section about conversions Luke highlights God's plan of redemption through two specific people, through Lydia and then through the Philippian jailer. They were, again, the first reported European converts. Let's read that text beginning in verse 11. So setting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We were staying in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have found me, judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In verse 11, Paul and his missionary team set sail from Troas, which is on the western edge of Asia Minor, and it's about 25 miles south of the ancient city of Troy. Remember the map that we used a couple of weeks ago? It's very handy to have a map handy. Thanks. I get a little amen from that back row there. It's handy to have this here so that we know where Paul is going and how God is working through all of these things. The team had already gone about 600 miles from Antioch and there were still about 125 miles more to go before they reached Philippi. I love history and so the history of Philippi is a very interesting context for us. Philippi was founded in 356 BC by the Macedonian king Philip II who was the father of Alexander the Great. It was a wealthy city It had an autonomous government. Its citizens had the protection of Roman law. They were exempt from paying tribute. They were free from the provincial governor, answerable only to Rome. Historians also say that Philippi was home to the worship of many pagan gods. The ruins of Philippi still exist. They're classified as a UNESCO World Heritage Site because, in part, it was also the site of one of the greatest battles in Roman history. That was when Mark Antony and Octavian, or Augustus Caesar, were on one side, and Brutus and Cassius, if you remember your history, they were the architects of the assassination of the Roman dictator Julius Caesar two years prior. They were on the other side. The battle involved 200,000 men in one of the biggest battles in Roman history. In the end, nearly 25,000 soldiers died. And both Cassius and Brutus committed suicide, which was an ignoble end for these veteran Roman soldiers. But Charles Spurgeon wrote about Philippi and said, As long as time endures or human slaughter is thought worthy of a record, Philippi will be remembered as one of the greatest names in martial history. But when time shall have passed away and the records of human guilt shall have been cast into oblivion, Philippi will still have a name as the place where the first herald of the cross cried, Europe, for Jesus. God was accomplishing his plan and advancing the gospel through his church. This is the big picture that we need to remember, that this is God's kingdom plan, his promised program realized through the nations. You know that whenever there were traveling missionaries like Paul, when they came to a new town, the first thing they did was to immediately go to the synagogue to preach. But when this team arrived in Philippi, there was no synagogue because there were apparently not enough Jewish men to make a quorum. There were 10 Jewish men by Jewish tradition who were required to make a quorum for a synagogue. But without those men, there was no synagogue. So on this Sabbath, Paul and his companions went down by the river where it was known that there were faithful women who had gathered to pray and to worship. These women were not believers in Jesus Christ, but they were worshipers of Yahweh. And Luke writes that God opened Lydia's heart to listen to Paul's teaching like all sinners, she did not seek God on her own until he sought her. In Romans 3.11, Paul wrote, There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. No one can come to me, declared Christ, unless the Father who sent him draws him. Pastor John writes that Lydia's conversion shows that God will reveal the fullness of the gospel to those whom he causes to honestly seek him. In John 6, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Isn't it encouraging that God will never turn away those with a seeking heart? And Lydia's response, as we see in the text, was immediate baptism, for her and her household, and an open home for fellowship of young believers. What a practical example that is for us to follow today. Even in this time, when our interactions with others are so limited, there's still many ways for us to minister to believers and to share the gospel with unbelievers. We don't lack opportunity, and I pray that we would not lack the commitment. Lydia's conversion is also similar to what we had seen before with Cornelius, In Acts chapter 10, you remember that Cornelius was described as an upright and God-fearing man who listened to Peter's teaching about Jesus Christ and whose heart was opened by God to trust Christ's work on the cross. Cornelius and Lydia were both faithful to what they knew, and God allowed them to see a greater truth, that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Both responded by believing and by being baptized. It's an opportunity for us to look at our own lives and whether people would see we are not the people we used to be, that our allegiance now and our love now is no longer the things of the world, but we stand for Christ because he is our Savior and our Lord. It's a a good opportunity to consider whether we would be described as worshipers of God. I want to look at another narrative from Luke that helps explain what it means to worship God. In his gospel account, Luke tells the familiar story of Martha and Mary. We all know that story. But if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, and we will read that account beginning in verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all of the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered By so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken from her. In such a gentle and kind way, Christ corrected Martha's thinking and he changed her behavior. Jesus said that only one thing is necessary. Mary chose to listen to Christ, she chose to learn from Christ. She chose to worship Christ, and that should be our commitment as well, our first commitment. So as we consider this, it helps to think through what is worship, and in, you know in its simplest form, it means worth-ship or attributing worth to Jesus Christ. With that as our goal, we can then determine to set our mind and to make a deliberate choice to pursue Christ and then every day to discipline ourselves to accomplish that goal. Pastor John writes that worship is ultimately our first priority. Nothing on anyone's agenda is more important. In fact, the hectic pace of modern life only elevates the importance of active, deliberate, purposeful, daily worship of Jesus Christ. And I've always been drawn to the example of Ezra the scribe when he is described as having set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's an example for us. That's also what Lydia did. She set her heart to know God. She lived her faith and she led her household in that same faith. The question for us is how will we purpose, by the grace that God provides, to grow in our worship of Jesus Christ? Lydia's conversion was certainly a joyous event, but as we continue, we will see that when the gospel goes forth and lives are changed, opposition follows. That was true in Philippi, and we know that it's certainly true today. As the narrative in this chapter continues, Satan tries to disrupt and destroy the blessing and the joy of this young fellowship. He tries this through opposition, through persecution, and that's our third section where we move into conflict and confinement. Paul and his team were continuing to meet with these young believers down by the river, and one day they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Let's read that text, beginning in verse 16. It happened as we were going to the place of prayer that a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it happened at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion. They're being Jews. They're proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore the robes off them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. The girl was possessed by what was known as the spirit of Pythona, which is a type of snake, a python. The python was associated with the Greek god Apollo, and it seemed to be very prevalent in this area because Apollo's shrine was just outside of the city of Philippi. The slave girl brought her owners a lot of money by fortune-telling, and so apparently she would go into some sort of trance under the influence of the demon— who would then speak through her, and people would pay her owners to find out what was going to happen in the future. She was following Paul and the team for many days. And finally, Paul was so annoyed that he commanded the demon to come out. But the slave girl seemed to be speaking the truth. Paul and the others were bondservants of the Lord. They were sharing the good news of salvation in Christ. So what bothered Paul so much? Some commentators say that Paul may have guessed that if he stopped the harassment, then his teaching and preaching in Philippi would also stop. That may be why Paul allowed it to continue. Some commentators say that Paul didn't want the truth of the gospel perverted by someone who controlled Satan, and that's why he decided to stop. Some commentators say that the Philippian people saw the slave girl following Paul and assumed that she shared those beliefs, and that could have destroyed the credibility of this young church. And still other commentators say that in this town, where the worship of pagan gods was common, that the slave girl's reference to the Most High God meant that Paul's God was just the first among many other pagan gods, and Paul would never allow that. Luke doesn't provide any specific details, But whatever the reason, Paul commanded the girl to be freed of the demon, and it was done immediately. And it's interesting if you noted that there's no more conversation about the slave girl. We don't know anything more about her and how she responded. But what we do know is how her owners responded. They charged Paul and Silas with two things. As Jews, they were disturbing the city, and they advocated customs that were not lawful for the Romans to accept or to practice. But these weren't the real reasons that the charges were leveled against Paul and Silas. It was because the owners of the slave girl had lost their source of income. So those false accusations resulted in unfair judgments. The mob mentality took over. Paul and Silas were publicly mocked, attacked, beaten, thrown into the prison with their feet in stocks. They were in the deepest and darkest and filthiest place in this prison that was normally reserved for the most dangerous of criminals. And yet, they trusted God. They trusted God's plan for them. They trusted God's plan for the spread of the gospel. And another Gentile, that Roman jailer, was saved because of their trust. God's sovereignty is seen here in the persecution, arrest, and imprisonment of Paul and Silas. Because from that came salvation. Throughout the Bible, there are stories of God's faithfulness, his working together of all things for good, even when it's hard to see from a human perspective. Many of us will remember that story of Joseph in Genesis and how he was mistreated by his brothers, how he was charged with wrong accusations and how he was imprisoned. And yet he was able to say, you meant this for evil but God meant this for good. There are so many narratives in Scripture where God uses terrible circumstances to bring about good and often to bring about salvation. I think of Esther standing up for the Jews in the royal court. Certainly, we remember Daniel and his friends standing up in the face of terrible opposition. And here, we see this in the imprisonment of Paul and Silas. Let's read that next text beginning in verse 25 when we see the result of what happens. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household. And he brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. In the midst of these terrible circumstances... Paul and Silas were at peace. I don't know about you, but if I am anxious or unhappy or frustrated, my tendency is not to sing. I worry and I complain, and this is why I still have so much to learn from Paul and Silas. I've never faced the conditions that they face, but their response was trust and confidence. They trusted that their Savior was sovereign over every detail And he is sovereign over every detail in our lives today. Colossians 3.15 is a helpful reminder. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul and Silas were living out that truth while chained in the depths of this dark Philippian prison. And the other prisoners were listening to this testimony. Paul and Silas sang to God, sang of his goodness, and then suddenly God caused that earthquake so that the foundations of the prison shook, all of the doors were opened, and all of the chains came off. That's clearly God at work. This miracle, this earthquake is different, this imprisonment is different than what we have seen earlier in the book of Acts. First in Acts 5, when the apostles were thrown into jail and an angel of the Lord opened the prison gates and he ordered them to speak to the people in the temple. And you remember the account in Acts 12, where Peter was arrested and an angel had to awaken him And he was delivered by that angel of the Lord. This time in Acts 16, there are no angels and there is no escape. But God was still sovereign over every detail. You know, the Roman jailer immediately feared the worst. He knew that the penalty was death for any Roman soldier who allowed a prisoner to escape. So he had drawn his sword to kill himself. We don't know whether there was enough light that Paul had to see what was happening or whether he heard the jailer's words, but he immediately said, do not worry, do not fear. He called out to the jailer who came in. He fell before Paul and Silas and asked the most important question, what must I do to be saved? And Peter's, Paul's answer was very clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. This is the main message of this passage and it's the main message of Christianity that Christ's death and resurrection is the only way to God and that comes by God's grace. It is grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Paul and Silas' lives were testimony of God's mercy and great and grace, and it was that witness that drew the jailer to Christ. That witness not only drew the jailer but also the jailer's family. He responded immediately in baptism and his household as well. Luke wrote of the faith and obedience of the jailer and of Lydia, but he doesn't explicitly mention that repentance precedes faith. And it's important to recognize that link. Earlier in Acts 3, we see that Paul's Peter's second sermon, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Throughout Acts There are examples where salvation is talked about by faith only. There are other examples where repentance only is mentioned. And there are some examples when repentance and faith are linked together. One commentator wrote that repentance and faith are two sides of one coin. They're not identical, but where one is mentioned by itself, the other is presupposed. And that's important for us to remember that repentance is a part of salvation. It's also important to note another similarity between the jailer's belief and Lydia's belief that both accounts tell of the faith and the baptism, not only of the main individual, but also the household. In the case of the Philippian jailer, it's clear when you see verse 32 that Paul spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And in the next verse, he and his family were baptized. The implication is that all were baptized because all believed. And it's the same implication with Lydia, that she and her household believed, and so she and her household were baptized. Commentators call this household baptism, and it results from household belief. Every individual comes to faith on her own. We cannot be saved by someone else's faith. So following the belief and the baptism in both of these households, both the jailer and Lydia opened their homes to Paul and his companions. They immediately put feet to their faith. They provided practical care to others. It was Paul's teaching that drew Lydia, while it was Paul and Silas's witness that drew the jailer. We see that our good and sovereign God Uses unfair, terrible circumstances as equally as he uses wonderful, benign circumstances to draw people to himself. In both of these conversions, God's sovereign plan of redemption is displayed. The gospel is available to all people, regardless of who they are or what they do. The gospel was preached to a wealthy Gentile Greek woman who was receptive to spiritual things, and the gospel was also preached to a retired Roman soldier who showed no initial interest in the gospel. What a stark contrast between these two people. Different genders, different jobs, different lifestyles, different sensitivity to the gospel. But God saved both. These differences mean nothing to God because his gospel is available to all people who recognize Christ's provision on the cross. I want to address the issue of whether the slave girl was saved. There are different opinions among commentators, among scholars. Some say that she was saved. Others say that she wasn't. I join those, and fortunately our pastor does too, who say that the slave girl was not saved and that the story of Acts 16 is the story of two conversions and not three. And here's why. In the story of the slave girl, the only response that we see is that of her owner's. They were infuriated by the loss of income, and so they pursued Paul and Silas. There's nothing that reflects an open heart. As a matter of fact, we don't hear anything more about that slave girl. We don't hear anything about her owners other than they were incensed and they wanted revenge. There's no change of behavior, so it's fair to assume that there is no repentance. True conversion results in true change. And of the three lives that are presented in Acts 16, only two changed. As we continue to the closing verses in this chapter, that detail of what happened after the conversion of the jailer is interesting. And it's clear from the context when you look at verse 37 that Paul and Silas had returned to their cell likely to protect the jailer's life. The prison doors had been opened. There were no chains to confine the prisoners, but they returned willingly, trusting that God was at work in and through these circumstances. Read with me, beginning in verse 35. When the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, release those men. And the jailer reported those words to Paul, saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. So they came, and they appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. This was the first time that the authorities knew that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and it must have been both a shock and a threat to their position and their lives because they knew of the incredibly unfair treatment that the pair had received. Their arrest was unwarranted, the beating was unjust, there was no opportunity for the prisoners to present their case, so there was no testimony for Paul and Silas to reveal that they were Roman citizens. There was no due process, there was wrongful confinement, it was biased, prejudiced, discriminatory, unreasonable, excessive, and completely contrary to Roman judicial protocol. The magistrates themselves could have been punished, beaten, thrown into prison, removed from office, and Philippi's special position as a Roman colony could have been revoked and all privileges for their citizens withdrawn. So the authorities were eager to get rid of them, make the problem go away, quietly and quickly. But Paul said, no, the unfair treatment had to be addressed. It's likely that Paul was looking to protect this young church. Because if this had happened to the leaders of the church who were Roman citizens, it's very possible that it could have happened to the members of the church who were not Roman citizens once Paul and Silas and Timothy had gone on their way. Luke closes the chapter with the leaders apologizing to Peter and Silas. And they went out. And I love this last verse. They encouraged the young believers. I want you to note that it's not the other way around. They just came from beatings and imprisonment. And yet they came to encourage these young believers. I have a friend who is the mother of a missionary across the world. And she pointed out that Paul and his team, as they encouraged the other believers, it wasn't the other way around. The blessing comes back on us, those who stay on the home front. Even when we desire to seek to encourage those who are serving, the Lord blesses us by seeing their faithful example. As we close the chapter, we see that God sovereignly thwarted and overruled Satan's attempt to destroy this young church. And that's why Acts 16 stands as a highlight in this book. This is a narrative of the gospel spread and an affirmation of God's promise to the nations. Remember how we started our time together, that we, in this chapter, see God's divine plan of redemption for all people, Jew and Gentile, men and women, without discrimination. In this chapter, we see that God used scattered believers to accomplish his plan as Paul brought the gospel to Philippi in Europe. We see the Holy Spirit empowering believers to preach the gospel with boldness and with confidence, even in the face of opposition. And the message for believers today, for the church today, is the same message as it was more than 2,000 years ago to those believers. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the means by which we are reconciled to a holy God. As we consider this whole narrative, there are questions that we need to think about. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord? Have you responded in faith like Lydia and the Philippian jailer? Do you believe that God is sovereign over every detail of your life? And are you content with where you are in your life? Or are you looking to go somewhere else, to be away from something else. It's helpful for us to consider that opposition will always follow the gospel. So how are you preparing for the opposition and the persecution that is coming for those who preach Christ? How can you help raise up the next generation to do the hard things for the gospel? And how can you worship Jesus Christ today. Let's follow the example of those faithful women and go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, how privileged we are to be learning this truth in a world of opinions and ideas when so few people seem to know what's right and what's wrong. Help us to be faithful as Christians, to be faithful individually, to be faithful as a church to what you call us to do. Help us to be students of scripture. May we be faithful to study and show ourselves approved. May we be committed and devoted to grow in our understanding of who you are and the work that you have accomplished. Father, I thank you for these precious women who love the word, who love fellowship, and who have committed to know you, to love you, and to obey you. We pray that you would use us for your glory. Help us to be faithful witnesses of your mercy and grace as we share the good news with others. In this prayer, as in all things, may this be for your glory as we know it is for our good. And it's in your name we ask. Amen.